Will you pray with me? You've heard this prayer before. You just said it a few minutes ago. Almighty and everlasting God, by whose spirit the whole body of your faithful people is governed and sanctified, receive our supplication and prayers which we offer before you for all members of your holy church, that in their vocations and ministry they may truly and devoutly serve you. Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. A lot of times we just kind of skip over those collects, but that is so providentially appropriate that we talk about vocation and ministry today as something that we pray for. Um, first of all, I just want to say what an honor it is to be here. As David mentioned, um, I knew David when he was younger and shorter. He never was short, okay, uh, but he was younger and shorter. And uh, David's family has been an important part of my life for the last 30-some years. Uh, I first met David in 1985, which is before many of you were born. So uh, it is a real honor to be here. Um, we're coming home. My wife and I, we've lived in Florida. We're moving back to this area. I, I grew up in, uh, well, actually the Annandale area. My mailing address was Falls Church, but I went to Jefferson High School back before we had to be smart to go there. Um, my wife graduated from TC, just down the street. Um, and if you've seen the movie, Remember the Titans, that was her graduating class. And um, if you've seen that movie, you remember the quarterback, Sunshine, uh, that was her boyfriend. Um, <laughs> And at the end of the movie, when we saw it in the theaters when it came out, my children looked at her plaintively and said, he could have been our dad. <laughs> but she picked me. What can I say? So uh, we're, we're coming home. We're coming home. If I said to you, D4HLGP, Caterpillar tractor, would any of you know what I was talking about? And some of you may, if you're in the construction business, that may ring a bell. Um, sometimes when I can't sleep, I'll turn on my computer and I'll go to YouTube and just watch videos about things that interest me. And you know, if you ever go to YouTube, sometimes they suggest videos based on what you've watched before. And one of the videos that they suggested was a guy changing a rear sprocket on a giant Caterpillar tractor, D4HLGP. What surprised me was not that I, just that I was watching this video at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, but that a quarter of a million other people had watched that same video. Uh, and then they suggested another one about how to change a tire on a backhoe, and I watched that one too. Uh, what, what surprised me about that one was that almost half a million people had watched that video, which tells me something. Either there are a lot more people that own backhoes than I'm aware of and don't know how to change the tire on them, or that there is something fascinating about watching real people do real things with real skill. And I think that's probably more, that was why I watched it, I don't own a backhoe, although now that I know how to change a tire, <laughs> you know. People, I think, were just drawn to watching ourselves and other people do things that they have a sort of beauty to them because it's part of the way God put us together. Uh, I was in Nepal once visiting a missionary that we supported there, and he took me to visit another missionary, a, a Wycliffe Bible translator that was in Nepal. And uh, this Wycliffe Bible translator was having some cabinets made for his kitchen. And uh, 
these were beautiful cabinets. They were about halfway done. And uh, I was side, I had been in the construction business for a while when I was in seminary. I kind of worked my way through seminary doing construction. And I was taken by the Nepalese craftsmen that were doing these. These were beautiful cabinets. Any one of us would have been proud to have these cabinets in our kitchens. And yet these Nepalese craftsmen had nothing more than what you and I would call a keyhole saw, which is a little saw about this long, and a screwdriver. And they were making beautiful cabinets with just those two simple tools. They didn't have workbenches. They didn't have drills or anything else, but their skill level was such that they could produce beautiful craftsmanship with very, very simple tools, just using their abilities. And I was so enthralled by that. And the same thing happens when I watch Anne sit down. If I sat there, I, I could make that thing make noise. You know, I could bang on it and, and, and it would make, and occasionally I might hit a note. But to see Anne sit down there or up here and make that contraption make beautiful music or to 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 listen to Thomas I, when I, I met Thomas before I heard him sing and I thought what a nice guy he's just a nice guy and then out of that comes this voice you know and whoa where did that come from my gosh you know this the the fact that he can use the gift that he has to create beauty and to lift up the hearts of people and the artists whose work is displayed around here and I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute uh, when we talk about architecture. Um, it should be no surprise, the very first time in the scripture that somebody we are told is filled with the Holy Spirit is in Exodus. And I want you to listen to this passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. First time anyone gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? So they could preach great sermons or lead Sunday school or whatever. No. I filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, engage in all kinds of crafts. It's the first time that God fills somebody with the Holy Spirit that we're told about in Scripture is not to do teaching or any of that stuff. It's to make things. It's to create beauty and useful things. That's important. This book, which is now out of print um, by Dorothy Sayers, some of you know who Dorothy Sayers is. She was an author who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and they were good buddies, and she wrote lots of things, including a bunch of mysteries and stuff, but she gave a talk. This is a, it's called Creed or Chaos, and she gave a talk in 1942 in England called Why Work, and it's included in this book, and I'll be quoting from it here in a second. Now, some of you here, either from history, uh, or maybe a few of you here are old enough to remember the 40s, England in 1942 was in the middle of a war. Uh, the Battle of Britain had taken place in 1940. D-Day did not occur until 1944. So this is right in that period where England is really suffering, and she is giving a lecture on why work. Why should we bother? And the the question was directed after the war is over, after the crisis is passed, why should we work? What is it about work that is inherently Christian? Because she was talking primarily to Christians. And she said this, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality. In other words, the church has become mentally ill. The church has lost touch with reality. As in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation, 
The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world has turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. Is that astonishing, she asked rhetorically. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life? In other words, you spend a lot more time at work than you do in church, and if church doesn't have anything to say about work and the, and the real world of life, why bother? The quality of work is an important thing to emphasize. This is more than telling someone not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church. It is important to say work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. It's a challenge. We think of Christian art as people making pictures of doves and clouds and crosses. C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers said Christian art can be on any subject if it's done with the glory of God in mind. It doesn't have to have an overtly Christian theme. And it's the same thing with your vocation and your profession and your calling and your occupation as we shall talk about. I want to make five points very quickly. First of all, work was good before the fall. God put us in the garden, as was read earlier, to work. Work is good. Work is not the result of the fall. Work was before the fall. Again, Dorothy Sayers, we have had to learn the bitter lesson that in all the world there are only two sources of real wealth, the fruit of the earth and the labor of men. It's as if Michelangelo got most of the way done with the Sistine Chapel and then handed us a brush and said, here, you finish. God gets the creation going and then invites us, as the prayer said, to be participants in his recreation of the world and to his finishing of it. What, a, what an incredible opportunity. What an incredible responsibility. Second point, work is an essential part of being made in the image of God. Again, Dorothy Sayers. Work should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself, that man made in God's image, the imago dei, should make things as God makes them, for the sake of doing a thing that is well worth for the sake of doing well, a thing that is well worth doing. Now, um, I told you I'd talk about architecture. I, I want to give a bump to the adult forum that you all are having after church. The word architect is a word that Paul uses, literally. And I'll read you the passage. This is in 1 Corinthians 3. For we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation. That word that's translated there in the Greek, skilled master builder, is literally the word architecture, architect. The word arche is the beginning or the, the source. Tecton, as I will talk about in a second, means something done with the hand. So, the word master builder is the word architect. And Paul is saying, I was participating with the master architect. I'm God's fellow worker. And I am co-creating with him this world. So when this afternoon, 
or this, later on this morning when uh, the architect speaks, he is going to be speaking directly out of 1 Corinthians and directly out of Paul's understanding of what it means. There are, we use different words to talk about what we do, and I'm going to come back to this theme, but I want to give you the tools here for just a minute. The first word that we use to talk about things that we do is the word job. And the word job and the word jab are linguistically the same. They mean kind of a quick punch, something that you do, you get a paycheck. You know, you show up, you do the job, you get a paycheck, you go home. There's not really much investment in it. The next sort of step up is the word occupation, which is the word cup. It means something that's filled up. That's why you put occupied on the seat, you know, or the, the, the lavatory is occupied. It's full. It's what you do to fill up your time. Okay, it's one step up from a job, but it's, it's, it's more or less just kind of something that you do. The next step up from that might be the word career, which comes from the word car, careen. It, it implies a path. And many of you know what that feels like. You, you go to college and they say, what's your major? You got, you know, two weeks to decide your major and then you pick your major and then the next thing you know, you're you know, 50 years old, and you're thinking, gee, you know, I've, I've just sort of, I moved from here to here to here to here to here. There was a career path. And it can feel comforting in one sense to know what the career path is. It can also feel like a trap, like you're stuck in a rut. The next step up from that is vocation, which is a sense of calling, and that's the word that we used in the prayer. That, that somehow a voice larger than our own and a wisdom greater than our own has called us to do something. And that's a very powerful thing. And, and I think we, need, we all need to have a sense that someone or something greater than ourselves has recognized who we are, has seen in us a greater gift than we saw in ourselves, and has called us to a higher calling, which leads us to the final one, which is profession. And I say that's the highest one because in a profession, what you do aligns with what you believe, what you profess. Your profession is integrally tied to your belief system, what you believe about yourself, about God, about the world. And to bring it full circle, any profession, any job can be a profession if you see it from God's perspective. If you tie what you're doing in that moment, even if it's something as simple as washing the dishes or digging ditches or putting paint on a wall, the things that I did when I was in seminary, if you see it from the perspective of part of your profession, what it means to be a co-creator with God, or part of your calling, part of your vocation, that God has brought me to this. This isn't just something I'm doing to fill up my time. This isn't just something I'm doing to earn a paycheck. That there is more meaning to what I'm doing than the actual doing of it. That this is part of my participation in God's creation. So, job, occupation, career, vocation, profession. And I would encourage you to consciously see what you do with your work life, whether it's done out in the world or whether it's done in a home or whatever, as a profession growing out of your Christian faith and God's unique calling on you as a person and your unique gifting as a person. Point three, Work helps us find out who we are. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, which is, I think, a staggering statement, in, especially in the Washington, D.C. area in the 21st century. 
He uses the word ambition, and this is the only place in the New Testament where the word ambition is used in a positive sense. Every other time the word ambition is used in the New Testament, it's used negatively, selfish ambition. The only time the word ambition is used positively in the New Testament is right here. And he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, and to mind your own business. Now, if your son or daughter came to you and, you know, said, I've decided what I want to do with my life. And you said, great, I want to hear what is your ambition. I want to mind my own business, work with my hands, and lead a quiet life. Some of you may say, great, that's biblical. You're quoting scripture. I love it. Some of you may say, huh? That's why I paid for you to go to private school? That's why I you know, drove you to all those lessons and so you could lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands? I want you to be you know, an achiever. I want you to go to graduate school. I want you to have initials after your name. But Paul is saying there's more to life than that. And we see that in the life of Jesus. At the very end of Luke chapter 2, you know the story when Jesus gets lost from his parents and they, you know, they travel for a day or two and they're going down from Jerusalem back up to Nazareth. You know the story. Everybody here kind of know it. They went to the temple and Jesus was 12 years old and et cetera, et cetera. They can't find him. They go back. And of course they can't find him because the last place you look for a 12-year-old boy is church. Okay, So uh, you know, they're looking all the places that you would naturally look for a 12-year-old and they finally find him in church. And what's he doing? He says, I must be about my father's business. I, I, I need to be in dad's house. I need to be doing what, what dad does. But then something remarkable gets said. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. And Jesus went down with them. You always go down from Jerusalem in the scripture. It's a theological thing more than a geographic thing, although Jerusalem is on a hill, not a very high hill. But you always go down, even if you're heading north, to Nazareth, which if you remember, remember the line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a nothing town. Nazareth was like saying they went from Washington, D.C. to Amosville, or they went from Washington, D.C. to and if I was in Florida, I'd say Stark or Tuag or someplace like that. You know, someplace that's sort of out there, that you don't go there unless you go there. But he went, God's plan for Jesus was not to become the Son of God, not to understand what his role was as the Son of God in the scholarly halls of the academia in Jerusalem. God's plan for Jesus was to discover what it meant to be the Son of God in a working class family in a small town, working as a tectone. That's the Greek word that often gets translated carpenter, which probably didn't mean carpenter in that day, but in 17th century England when they translated the King James Bible, a tectone, like architectone, was somebody who worked with his hands. And in Jesus's, in the 17th century England, if you worked with your hands, you were a carpenter. In Jesus' day, he probably was a stonemason. Either way, his hands were the hands of a working class guy. When Jesus laid his hands on people, they were not the soft hands of a scholar. They were not the soft hands of somebody who had spent his life just sort of reading books and praying. They were the hands of a guy who had lived a real life. He had dirt under his fingernails. He was a lunch bucket guy. And that's what the people who follow Jesus meant when they said he has real authority. He understands our life. He talks about lost coins and lost sheep and, and lost children and crops that fail because of lack of rain and houses that don't get built right if they get built on sand because Jesus had built houses. 
he understood what it meant to live a real life. And that's why he connected with real people, because he was a tectone. Now, there's a flip side to that that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus went back to Nazareth, Matthew 13, he began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. And they said, isn't this the carpenter's, the tectone's son? In other words, isn't this the son of a working class lunch bucket guy? Isn't this the guy who went off to Scythopolis with his dad and, and carried wood and learned how to carve and learned how to work and, and do all that stuff? Where did he get all these things? And they took, we're told, they took offense at him. In other words, they despised his wisdom in his hometown because he didn't have a lot of initials after his name. And yet, he taught with real wisdom because he saw the connection be between work and worship, between life and liturgy, between belonging to God and working in God's world. And that's why the rest of the people listened to him. They said he connects with us. Point four, work reminds us of our responsibility within the body of Christ. Paul wrote, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shouldn't even eat. In other words, we are responsible one for another. Nobody is optional. There are no spare parts in the body of Christ. Every single one of us has been gifted and given things to do. Has been given jobs, yes, occupations, yes, some even careers, all vocations that grow out of your profession. You have a responsibility. You are not just to sit here on Sunday morning and absorb David's and, and the rest of the staff's wonderful teaching. You are to make a contribution, not just here, but out there as well. That's the point Dorothy Sayers was trying to make. That is where ministry takes place. Okay, and finally, point five, understanding work from God's perspective helps us to move beyond ourselves. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, anyone who has been stealing must not steal anymore, but must work, doing something useful with their hands. Paul made tents, Jesus made houses that they may have something to share with those in need. The goal of our work is not just so we can have a bigger house. We can have a nicer car. We can send our kids to a better school. The purpose of our work is so that we can have an abundance, so that we can share with those in need, so that the body of Christ can be built up, not only here in Alexandria, but around the world in places like Haiti and who knows where else. Your work contributes not only to your understanding of who you are in Christ, it contributes to the well-being of the rest of the world. The purpose of your work, as Wesley said, you should earn all you can, give all you can, save all you can. Earn all you can, but give all you can. Save all you can. It's so that you can make a contribution to the world. Let me summarize in a famous saying, the three things we need for life are something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. And I have found that to be true. And when I talk with folks and they're in despair, I say, okay, something to do, someone to love, something to hope for. Let's sort of lay that over your life as a template. How you doing? Something to do, of course. We all need something to do. 
Even if you're retired, you need something to do. Your work matters. You, just because you reached a certain age, I'm 67. I've still got lots of things I need to do. I've still got things that God wants me to do in my life. And I'm excited about finding out what they are and doing them. You have things that you need to do just because you've reached a certain point in your life or just because you haven't reached a certain point in your life doesn't mean that God isn't calling you to do something. Someone to love. Others are depending on you to do the thing that you've been called to do. Find out what it is. I was, I was awestruck when the young man said, I took a spiritual gift inventory. That is amazing at that age to begin to have an understanding of how God has given you gifts. He's, he's given you abilities and gifts and inclinations and desires to, to put into practice. That's a wonderful thing. And finally, something to hope for, that, that you will leave behind a legacy, that, that others will be lifted up on your shoulders, and that you will have created a, a, a world that God can bless because he was with you the whole time. We are God's fellow workers, says Paul. We are co-laborers with him. Can you imagine what it is like to stand next to Jesus and have him put his hand on yours and say, let me show you how I want you to do this. That is the offer that God makes to each one of us. That he is working in us, through us, beside us, around us. And our work is sacred. It's not something we do during the week so that we can come and be in church on Sunday. Our work itself is sacred. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these folks. Thank you for this place where we can be equipped, where we can be encouraged, where we can be established, and out of which we can be sent into the world to uh, serve you, Lord. Guide us, O thou great Jehovah, as we leave this place that you may go before us to do the work, as the prayer says, that you have prepared for us to do. We pray this in the strong name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together.